Hello and welcome to another episode of For What It's Earth, the nature, environment, climate change and sustainability podcast that asks, is there anything that you and I can do to save the planet just a little bit? My name's Emma and this week I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by botanist and author Leif Sweden to talk about all things plants, climate change and his very exciting new book. So without further ado, here's the result of our wonderful chat. Leif, listen, you have received your PhD in orchid genetics earlier this year. You've written and published two books, more on that later, uh, which are The Orchid Hunter and Winter Trees. And now in what I can only imagine is a career highlight, you're sat talking to me about plants, climate change, uh, you know, your love of all things botany. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you very much. That's very kind. And you do joke, but um, I'm actually an enormous fan of your podcast and so I'm actually Aww. like I am genuinely a little bit starstruck stop <laughs> yeah, it I'm usually you know walking I went the in street. with the fake arrogance <laughs> and now I'm blushing <laughs> no 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 um yeah yeah no it's, it's a real pleasure to actually be on here I hopefully I can say something of interest to oh, your have- listeners but <laughs> absolute total confidence that you can otherwise I, I wouldn't have asked you to if there was any doubt you would have been you would have been struck off the list. Um, <laughs> well, in that case, since, since you've listened, you've got absolutely no excuse. And because I told you about it earlier today, um, first question for you before we start looking at all the important things with plants and climate change, Leif, what one good thing have you done for the planet this week? I've always wanted to answer this question. Um. <laughs> oh, I'm, getting, I'm getting giddy. Nobody's ever been this excited to be on the podcast. <laughs> Um, well, so I did, I had a thought, um, earlier, I have actually done something this week. Um, oh, good. Because this morning your message was, I've immediately so... started recycling. And quite honestly, I was concerned <laughs> that you hadn't been recycling up until this point. <laughs> I applied for my first recycling bin. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, so this, um, basically I am a huge fan of mushrooms, uh, like cooking with mushrooms. Cool. And, um, Obviously, when you go to the supermarket to buy your mushrooms, you're faced with two options. You've got the like plastic tubs with the cellophane around mm. it, and you've got your loose mushrooms with that like brown paper bag that you can pop them in. So about a year ago, I made the switch from the plastic tubs to the paper bags. Nice. And so for the past year, I've been trotting back and forth from the supermarket with my bag of mushrooms. But it occurred to me... <laughs> <Just> every day. <laughs> every day. They know you in Tesco's now. <laughs> Mushroom well, man coming in. They do. They do because... Um, so <laughs> what I've done this week is it's occurred to me that I'm just transporting these mushrooms in these bags and then immediately just recycling the bag. And so I, what I did this week was I decided, well, actually, I'm just going to start reusing that brown paper bag. And so now when I go in um, to the supermarket to get my mushrooms, I, like, whip out this crunk, like, crinkled... <laughs> really scrunched up old paper bag <laughs> yeah, to get my mushrooms and the other day <laughs> they've clearly clocked me because um i went to the mushroom section opened up my rucksack um but instead of reaching in to grab the the brown paper bag and take it out i just went straight for the mushrooms and within seconds the security guard like appears <laughs> right next to me and I'm stood there with like, in one hand, I've got my empty rucksack You're open. just shoveling mushrooms. And then in my right hand, yeah, I've got like a fist full of mushrooms. And he's, he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm no, really no, you sorry. you don't understand. I I'm brought not, it back. I'm not, I'm not stealing your mushrooms. 
So yeah, he had me down as some kind of mushroom thief. Um, wow. But yeah, long story short, I'm reusing my brown paper mushroom bags. That's like a double good thing. <laughs> yeah. well, well, I think that's pretty good. That's, I mean, that came with even more of an anecdote than I was expecting. So uh, brilliant. Excellent. Brilliant. <laughs> okay, well, I haven't been told off for mine, thankfully. Um, we are redoing, well, listeners will know, we're going through the slow and painful process of trying to update a very, very old house. Current project is the kitchen. And um, we did an episode on like how to make home renovation and decoration like more environmentally friendly because it's such a wasteful and expensive and just very, like there are so many bad environmental aspects to trying to update your home. So today's one good thing is that we are, we've had to get new floorboards for our kitchen because they're all we ripped up the carpet and they were just covered in like woodworm. And we have managed to find someone in Swansea, so Lloyd's neck of the woods, who does reclaimed pine floorboards. So instead of buying fresh, new, shiny wood ones, we are, I don't know, using wood that's already been used and is still good enough to be my new kitchen floorboards. That's so good. I thought you were going to say you're going to ship off the old ones to like for someone else's house. <laughs> I don't think they'd want them, to be honest. To be honest, they're probably actually going to end up being, um, well, we've, we've been like treating them for woodworm, but they're probably going to end up being um, like floorboards in our loft because oh, wow. we've only got a small part of our loft that's actually got flooring. So we thought, we were doing that. We were thinking, oh, what on earth can we do with them? Like They're so bad, nobody else can have them. But hey, maybe they'll be fine in our loft. That's so good. Well, so yeah, again, it's like a double thing for you as well then. Oh, gold stars all round, yeah, I think. I know. <laughs> I'm going to end here. <laughs> no, 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 sir. Not I've got you on up. the podcast. We're <laughs> chatting. Uh, listen, you're, you're here to talk about plants. You're a botanist. Um, talk to me. Plants, why are they so cool? I, I, I mentioned I'd make you do an elevator pitch. And I, I'm, essentially, I wrote down elevator pitch under one minute because I know that if I just ask you the blanket question, why are plants cool? That would probably be the entire podcast. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely would. Um, I, yeah, you said under one minute and I've struggled with this. Um, <laughs> well, the thing I find most interesting about plants in a very much a nutshell is they face all the same basic challenges as animals on a daily basis. So, you know, they have to put food on the table. They have to prevent themselves from being eaten by other things you know they have to reproduce all these things which animals have to do all the time plants have to do as well but they have to do that um with the added complication of being rooted to the spot and i just think that is so cool like how all the sort of myriad ways in which plants have adapted to life rooted to the spot just Mm. makes them just unbelievable and i think people often just almost dismiss them as being are they just green boring the background and actually they miss all these incredible things that they do in order Mm. to meet these challenges they face on a day-to-day basis um so they're almost not given a chance Uh, and i think yeah well yeah that's way more than a minute but that was a very good answer i'll accept (laughs) i'll accept the overrun i don't know i I honestly wasn't timing i was lost (laughs) wrapped up in the uh dismissal of plants. why why do you think it is that people overlook plants is it because they're not something that you can kind of watch the behavior of in the same way that you can watch an animal do stuff is it because is it kind of harder to connect and like anthropomorphize that's that word i can never get right (laughs) A, a plant although you do it very well when you talk about them you know putting food on the table and in your books and stuff you'll talk about them as if they're people and put them into like the same frames of reference that we have 
But do you think that is one of the problems with plants, kind of PR image? Yes, I think. So I, I'm constantly asking people why they find plants boring or why they find animals much easier to get excited about. And the most common answer by far is just the fact that plants don't move, mm. um, which technically isn't true. They do actually move. Oh, um, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> they just often move a lot slower than we do. Mm. Um, but yeah, so I think it's that thing about them being less relatable to us. Um, you know, they don't have eyes. So I think ah, yeah. people... We can't stare into the soul uh, of a plant. Yeah, exactly. And that that extends within animals as well. So the, the mammals with the forward-facing eyes that are most similar to us get the most, you know, conservation funding and all that sort of thing. They do. Mm. So, yeah, I think that plays into it. Um, but I think people are missing the point which is the fact they don't move is what's really cool about them. And everything that comes off the back of that is what people should be getting really excited about. Mm. I think I think that's a, that is a really good point, though. I, um, I've been wanting to do an episode on plants and climate change for quite a long time. And when I was trying to think of things to talk to you about, I was like, well, I can't just, the brief can't just be, hey, plants, climate change, talk to me. <laughs> but it was it's kind of easier to research problems that, animals are facing and i think that in part is what you've said with them them getting a lot more kind of attention from the conservation circles and things so but i mean when we are when we are looking at plants and climate change or the impacts of climate change on plant communities i think that's so vague because i'm not like picking on one particular species like i know you're a big fan of orchids it'd probably be easier for me to ask you yo what's what's up with orchids and climate change and we will get on to that well let's start vague because my knowledge of plants and plant communities is admittedly very vague so with climate change you know we're looking at things like more extreme temperatures we're looking at you know more variable weather more extreme events what so what are the kind of the main themes and things if we're looking at plants and plant communities globally or in the uk your choice um what, what are the main kind of themes that we're seeing so i will stick to the uk or britain and ireland just because um I That's definitely, yeah, I don't really know much about the rest of the world, to be honest, yet. yet. That's a problem. Hey, good uh, for. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, oh, there's, again, just so many ways in which plants are being affected by climate change. I think perhaps the most obvious one is increasing temperatures are really messing with the sort of life cycles of some species. Mm. So the obvious community would be the montane plants uh, that grow all over our mountains uh, it's a community called the arctic alpines mm. um, because their global distribution is generally split between the arctic and the bigger european mountain ranges like the alps and then they're sort of little outposts here in britain on our sort of relatively small mountains so we have this whole suite of species which are just they're like they're so beautiful and they have so many cool ways of dealing with living at cooler temperatures mm. but obviously as uh, the climate warms it gets a bit hot for them they can't deal with it they rely on things like um, a certain length of snow cover throughout the year yeah you know snow is so important for protecting them from trampling or protecting them actually insulating them from really icy winds and things yeah, this is something that I, I realised a couple of years ago when I was um, working, I say working in the Arctic, like the Swedish high Arctic, not like proper, proper. That's the at, Arctic. At the top of the top of the planet. But we were we were looking at um, how plant communities, oh, maybe I do know some stuff about plants. 
hang on um there we, we were go. looking at plant communities and like <laughs> in sweden as well it's like my favorite place <laughs> really well i'm i'm half swedish so are you uh, mm-hmm. ah i probably could have guessed that from your name actually <laughs> okay so we were looking at plant communities and essentially how they are shifting you want to say north but you can also mean in terms of like latitude but also upwards vertically up mountains along that kind of ecological gradient because of these warming winters but the point that i was very ramblingly circling back to was that was when i learned about the insulating effects of snow and i think you instantly think oh snow on the ground is going to keep things cool but actually in those really really cold wintry environments it acts like a blanket and yeah. it has to protect all sorts under there yeah yeah yeah. and they call it a blanket of snow for a reason because i yeah. get it now <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they're, they're so important for them. And you're right, it's completely counterintuitive. But yeah, so obviously the way plants deal with that in the short term is just by moving a bit higher up the mountain, as you say, so like going to the higher elevations. But that's only sustainable in a very short term way because once they so reach the top, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The mountains grow pretty slowly. So, <laughs> and plants, while well, they can move and they can sort of traverse across landscapes they just can't do it at a speed that's fast enough to deal with climate change so they can't and just it's, it's not exactly them. like they're moving themselves are they it's more that the community uh, as it reproduces shuffles yeah, exactly rather than the individuals like like a herd of reindeer exactly yeah 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 so it's all about seed dispersal and that kind of thing so our montane plants are really starting to struggle there's a paper coming out Next year, I'm not going to talk about it too much because it's not actually out yet, but it's by someone I know called Sarah Watts, who's up in uh, Scotland. And she and her team found that some of the the plants right at the top of uh, Ben Laws in the Highlands are have like massively declined over the last 25 years, uh, which is really sad. And it's, these mm. are some of the only populations of those plants um, in the country. So they are pretty important. And yeah, we're losing them. So the montane flora sort of migrating upwards is definitely one theme. Uh, Another one, as you've already mentioned, would be that migration northwards or in the northern hemisphere northwards. Uh, So we're seeing lots of uh, very exciting new species that are sort of traditionally considered Mediterranean species, which are appearing across the south of England. Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, it's nice to have these cool plants, but of course, what that also means is that we've got plants which have been here for a long time, which are now also moving north. But again, they've only got so far they can go (laughs) before the land runs out um, and their suitable habitats run out. So, yeah, we're seeing sort of a shift in the different plant communities across the country as, you know, we're starting to lose some, but we're also gaining others. So, yeah, there's lots going on. Lots of different ways that climate change is affecting things and lots of amazing scientists who are doing all the research for us. <laughs> Absolutely. Are there any particular winners or losers in the UK in terms of our native species? Yes. Um, lots of losers. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, Surprise. <laughs> yep. And some temporary winners as well. Yes. So uh, to give you some examples... I'll give you some orchid examples, as you mentioned oh, orchids. I knew we were going to swing on around to orchids, <laughs> yes. Is, is the bee orchid coming up? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, the bee orchid, I will. I can mention later if you like. But actually, Lovely, we'll put a pin in that. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so the, yeah, we have some 
temporary winners, um, plants like lizard orchids and lady orchids, which have for a long time been basically restricted to Kent or more or less the southeast. Um, they are now spreading westward and northward. And so we're seeing, uh, particularly with the lizard orchid, we're seeing them pop up all over England now. So certainly in, for the for the time being, they seem to be doing, they seem to be benefiting from our warming climate. Um, but yeah, on the flip side, you also have species like bog orchids and coral root orchids, um, which are both tiny green things, but they like growing in nice, cool, damp environments in the north of England and up in Scotland and Wales. So yeah, they are struggling because everything's getting warmer and they can't really deal with it and they don't actually have that far to, to go mm. north. So yeah. There are winners and losers, but the winners are temporary winners, I would say. Temporary winners. I think that's I think that's a good way to look at it. Because often we don't look at there being winners, and I do like the idea of having a look at winners in terms of climate change, but I agree. I, I certainly wouldn't want to do that without the caveat of, <laughs> yeah. yes, but. <laughs> a, that it's like, more likely a minority, <laughs> and B, it's very symptomatic of something much bigger and badder happening. <laughs> um, but, I mean, the reason I mentioned... The bee orchid, not only do I know it's your favourite orchid, I saw my first one this year and I was very excited. Um, yes. It was a slightly, it'd gone a bit over the hill, to be honest with you, <laughs> um, and it was looking a bit straggly, but I'd, I'd been searching for it in sand dunes in South Wales and I was like, I'm not leaving. Oh no, I wasn't, I was in Cumbria. I was like, I'm, I'm not leaving until I've seen yeah. an orchid. Because somebody <laughs> on the reserve had mentioned that they'd seen some and I was like, right, that's it. show me, Yeah, I'm going. But I think because they're quite an interesting example of where... They have an interesting relationship with their pollinator bees, hence the name bee orchid. Um, but one of the other effects of climate change is this mismatch of timings with things like flowering plants and pollinators, which over a very long period of time have evolved to be ready to pollinate and alive and around to pollinate at the same time so they can help each other's life cycles. But with changing seasons, uh, warming slightly earlier in the spring, some things will flower earlier or later some creatures like bees perhaps will um, come out of hibernation or start their, or they'll start to grow their colony later or earlier. Um, and then these bees and these orchids might no longer line up. They might not, not be able to help each other. So, so you mentioned before that actually a bee orchid could be one of the, well, was going to be one of the losers because A, it might mismatch with its bees, but it also has quite an interesting um, solution, does it not? Yeah, so, yeah, so bee orchids... And the its close relatives all do this sort of really cool pollination mechanism where they, they mimic female bees of a certain species in order to trick the male into thinking that their flower is a female. They attempt to mate with it, and in doing so, they get pollen on their neck, take it to the next part, pollinate it. But the bee orchid specifically um, has completely abandoned this mechanism. It has basically started pollinating itself. It's the only way it's been able to... Uh, to survive because obviously if you develop this really intricate pollination mechanism with one individual insect species then you're a bit you're I mean, you're in trouble if that insect species like you're disappears. literally putting your eggs mm. all in one basket that's, yeah that's quite stressful very stressful so the bee orchid actually for the time being is doing incredibly well people always think it's this really rare plant but actually it grows all over england and england and wales it's actually spreading up into scotland now um, a right. little bit probably because of climate change. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, for the time being, it's doing very well. But the problem with 
pollinating yourself. I speak as if I've done this personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is book three. Yeah, Philip's <laughs> <laughs> adventures into self pollination. Alrighty, yeah. Um, yeah, the problem is that um, it kind of messes with your genetics a bit. You don't get as broad a broader spectrum of, of um, genetic material. Mm. So what that means is that when the climate changes, these bee orchids might not have the genetic material required to combat those changes. And so if the climate warms a lot, then the bee orchids might just not be able to deal with it and they might just disappear fairly quickly. So yeah, but you're right, as you said, with the the mismatch with the pollinator uh, sort of flying time and the orchid flowering time very much applies to the other species uh, like fly orchids and early spider orchids which have evolved the same mechanism Um, and there is actually a study which I can't remember where it is or what it's called (laughs) which is really useful but just quote it science has said (laughs) um, age-old kind of scientists have reported loose loosey-goosey yeah (laughs) Um, but it's looking at the early spider orchids and they're looking at the points at which it's flowering each year and there's like a set um, I don't know quadrat or something in I want to say Sussex yeah it's in Sussex somewhere and they record every year what time of year what the date is when these plants start flowering they've compared it to herbarium specimens which have been collected in the past dried and pressed and kept in sort of sheets in, in drawers um which have been collected over the last you know 200 250 years wow and they're using that to line up with all sorts of facts like weather data and all that kind of thing and the flying time of its specific bee pollinator and they're finding and you'll have to look at the paper because i can't remember which way around it is but they're either finding <laughs> that the the orchid flowering period is moving earlier and earlier at a much faster rate than the flying time of the bee it could be the other way around but i think it's that way around but either way the point is is that soon there isn't going to be any overlap between those two Mm. uh, periods so it could be that the orchids have all finished flowering by the point where the bees emerge in the spring which is obviously completely a complete nightmare for those orchids because they just can't be pollinated so yeah bad news bad news all around to be honest Stop the press. Climate change is bad news. <laughs> what a surprise. Yeah. So, I mean, if we are looking towards the future, it kind of feels as though there's, and if we're talking about plants' role in the future, it kind of feels as though there's like two strands. One being saving nature and one being like using nature to help save nature, right? In a very convoluted way, nature-based solutions. Yeah. I think I think my question is, Leif, I know this is super broad. What role do you think plants that's right all plants have in helping us restore the environment you know reverse biodiversity and kind of help mitigate the climate crisis where can we put them in our roadmap to the future so i'm very <laughs> corporate here <laughs> for that is a pretty broad question um <laughs> well you're, you're a scientist well yeah, yeah. <laughs> i well i mean i could talk about trees but everyone always talks about trees and you sound like a man who's sick of trees. Well, <laughs> I'm not sick of trees. I love trees. You know, I've hugged many a tree in my time. Um, <laughs> but obviously there are so many problems with planting trees because mm. it's very important you plant them in the right places. 
I think you've mm-hmm. even talked about this on a previous <gasps> episode. You actually do listen to the podcast. <laughs> it wasn't a joke. We did. We spoke to Joe Middleton from the Woodland. Nice. One of my one of my all time favourites. That was very good. Yeah. very glad I got that. There we right. go. Listen, pop on back, and then you can come back and join us here. <laughs> so yeah, I won't talk about trees because you've already covered that. I think okay, I've got two ideas. Um, the first is plants are obviously the at the base of the food chain. They're the ones you know converting the energy from the sunlight into food which then works its way all all the way up to the apex predators so having a very rich plant diversity is only going to be a good thing for all the animals that depend on those plants i think it probably hopefully goes without saying that if you have 10 different plant species you're going to get a lot more of what you need from those 10 plants than if you just feed on one plant species so yeah, basically having as many different plant species in all these different habitats as possible is the first thing. The second is to think about mosses. Um, because I think mosses are an underrated player in this great game. <laughs> okay. Um, I think... Mosses, but... one minute, elevator pitch me. <laughs> no, <I'm kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> mosses get so overlooked all the time. Even by botanists, you know, until recently, I basically didn't think at all about mosses because they all kind of look the same unless you start actually looking at them. Okay. Um, But mosses do so much for us. Um, They clean our air. Mm. They make soil, which is obviously incredibly important. Partly because we're getting rid of so much of it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, they're an absolutely unbelievable carbon store. Mm. Um, Like, peat bogs aside... Even, you know, in our woodlands and everything, trees are covered in mosses, uh, in our ancient woodlands particularly, and they store so much carbon. I actually read yesterday, and I will preface this by saying I haven't been able to find any actual research to back this up yet, but I did read yesterday in a publication that mosses and liverworts, bryophytes generally, that group, uh, store as much carbon as trees do around the world. Wow. Which, if it's true, that's unbelievable that is amazing um, and it might be true because because of peat bogs and sphagnum um so mm. sphagnum mosses the bog mosses are just ridiculously cool plants which it just but every time i read about them it just blows my mind they're you know they're able to create their own habitat they actually so they really they thrive in acidic conditions and they they actively make their environments more acidic so that they can spread oh, further cool. Um, and yeah, they take all this um, carbon out of the out of the atmosphere, and then they get buried in these very oxygen poor conditions that make peat. And yeah, are this huge, huge carbon store. So mosses, I think, are a huge part of moving forward. And you know, you're already seeing all these like city nature walls, which are just like a bench in like a square with like a thing with moss on it and stuff. Yeah. I think those are amazing. They must be taking loads and loads of, of not nice stuff out of the air. That's so, a good point. I always see them and think that they've, rather sceptically, I suppose, or cynically, I always see them and think, oh, okay, a city's trying to look greener. They are. They absolutely are. I <laughs> but completely they are agree. several good things as well. Yeah, yeah, I think they need, basically, if they get a lot of them, then mm. it, it's really good. But having just one is, yeah, 
It's a bit it's of a like, well, Yeah, you've made I'm a sorry. little bit of effort. But... Roof all car parks and, and buildings with mosses, and then we'll talk. <laughs> yeah. No, I would actually love that. <laughs> what a, what a not, I'd like to. I mean, I don't really like living in cities, but I would like to live in a city that mossed up every roof. That would be that would be pretty cool. It'd be very cool. It's like nature's own solar panels. I like that. I like that the answer hasn't been trees. I like that the answer is let's pay some more attention to the the underdogs. The, the under mosses of this world and some of the great things that these not quite so in your face and obvious things can be doing. I like that. That's a good answer. I will be pinching that. Um, <laughs> so listen, you, I'm going to talk to you about your books. Amazing. Um, got, got to be, got to be done. Well, there's one on the way, but before we, before we tease that, um, <laughs> I, I really enjoyed your book, The Orchid Hunter, which I think gave me quite a good insight into uh, and would give any reader quite a good insight into you, who you are, and who you've been as a child. Um, I do. <laughs> so this is the amazing story where you're like, listen, I've got to take a gap year. So what am I going to do? I'm going to travel around the country in a broken car slash two broken cars, and I'm going to try and see every species of native flowering orchid, that I, like, all of them. All fi- Is it 53? Um, I went to see 52. It's sort of black and white. It's somewhere between 50 and 60 is the official answer, but I went to see 52. Which basically resulted in you writing a really charming book documenting your exploits and the adventures that you got up to. Um, and, and it's a really nice tale of like connecting with nature as well, if I'm honest. I, I really enjoyed it. So for the listeners, were there any points in that book or in that journey that were particularly memorable or comical? When you look back on that year, which, which bits stand out? Oh, that is a tricky question. There were lots of different um, exciting adventures each orchid came with its own little story. I think in terms of most memorable, you mentioned my broken cars. That was a constant feature <laughs> throughout the year. Real bane in my life. I mean, I loved, I loved those cars. They were, they were real friends to me. I did have other friends, just, <laughs> just, just to be clarified. Didn't even cross my mind, but I like that we had to go there. Sure. No, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I, that, I really get emotionally attached to my car. Yeah. All the other friends are plants, so. <laughs> <laughs> there are several on a bookcase uh, behind you. <laughs> this is my best friend, Fern. I know. <laughs> um, anyway, yes, so, yeah, it is, I know, I'm slightly aware of the fact that I'm on a podcast about the environment and I'm about to talk about driving around the country in my car, but. <laughs> Listen, we are not all perfect. We can't all be perfect. Society is not built for us to be perfect and the onus shouldn't be on a few of us martyring ourselves the onus should be on making the big decision makers and the big companies create a world that we can live in sustainably without it being backbreaking for us very Mike, good i could not agree exactly back to you <laughs> so you're very like you know you're very welcome to talk, talk about your car i'm i'm not in the business of shaming people well i will big companies i can i can move on from the car for the next book so we'll we'll come to that um, Excellent. but yeah no the car did provide a lot of entertaining stories for the last book the most memorable of those stories was um, I had one particular trip that was uh, I was in Yorkshire and I had an overnight trip up to Newcastle in Northumberland to find two orchids, the coral root orchid and the lesser toy blade. And the night before I drove up there, I was going to camp overnight. So the night before I drove up there, my phone died. Of Just course. wouldn't turn on. Um, which is slightly problematic. And so I used the landline and I called my um, family back down in Wiltshire in the south. And I was like, look, my phone's broken. What should I do? 
because I was 19 couldn't make any decisions for myself. Hey, it's a scary, <laughs> it's a scary situation. We're it so is. glued to them and relied on them. It's it's a scary, scary so time. So true, so true. And my dad was like, oh, just go to the supermarket in the morning and buy like a cheap one just to tide you over until you get home. So the next morning I go to the supermarket, go to the phone section and um, the cheapest phone is like £70. And I was kind of stood there just thinking... Oh my God, where's their back stock of like Nokia 3310s? Exactly, exactly. I was like, this is just seems ridiculous. So I'm not, I don't, I mean, I can't afford to spend £70 on a phone that I'm only going to use for a few days, which is also terrible for the environment, I might add. Hey. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I was like, you know what, I'm just going to risk it. It's two days. It'll be absolutely fine. So I drove up to Newcastle. I visited a nature reserve in Newcastle to find the coral root orchid. Um, with the help of the nature reserve warden who I bumped into there, I found it really, really quickly. And so by lunchtime, I was back in my car eating my lunch, feeling very pleased with myself because I just found this really difficult to find orchid. And I was thinking, well, actually, the next one would be a lot easier. So I can probably find it and get back to Yorkshire today, saving myself the cost of the campsite overnight. Oh, oh. I know. Brilliant. Can we see where this is going? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I, I drove off to go and find the next one. Um, going down the motorway through the middle of Newcastle when my wonderful car, which I had become very attached to, um, suddenly started like juddering violently and the engine is making all these grating sounds and grinding sounds. Um, all the power went, so I started slowly slowing down but couldn't go any faster. Luckily, it was fairly quiet, so I was able to get over onto the hard shoulder. So I was sitting on the hard, sh- hard shoulder and I'm like, okay, I've my car's basically broken. I don't have a phone. And <laughs> so <laughs> this is exactly the kind of situation that I really hoped wouldn't happen yeah. <laughs> over this two-day trip. Um, okay, so I, yes, I found a slip road. I walked up the slip road. I climbed up onto, there's like a walkway, and I walked across the motorway into Newcastle to try and find a payphone. Um, now, being 19 and hadn't really thought this all through again <laughs> i only had enough change for one phone call i was lucky i had any change at all did you ring your dad i did i was like i could ring the aa but um i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna go with do you know dad. what it's, it's it's very instinctive it is when you're in a scrape yeah it's like crisis point ring your parents um so yeah and he was amazing he was i was like look my phone's broken my car's broken. <laughs> I have no idea what to do. But he was like, look, you've got like a few miles uh, until your campsite. So the car, had, you know, it still starts. It still kind of works. So it's probably cooled down. So by the time you get back, it'll probably work. I was like, oh, <laughs> cool. Science. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just get to your campsite and then, you know, that'll be fine. So I go all the way back to the car. I start the engine sounds completely fine and i'm like did i just make that up miracle (laughs) i know (laughs) it's healed (laughs) um and yes i drove i kept going on the motorway i came off on the on the slip road uh stopped the traffic lights at the top and when they go green i try to move forward but the car stalls and won't turn on again it's just completely (sighs) dead at this point so i'm now sat in a car with no phone I'm in the middle of a four-lane slip road at rush hour, and there are cars just bombing past me on either side. Oh! <laughs> and I'm kind of like, 
well, I think this is it. This this is where I'm going to spend the rest of my life because because <laughs> oh, I, no. I can't like talk to anyone about it. <laughs> so it's a real miracle that I'm not still there to be honest. But um, yeah, luckily ten minutes later the like traffic police turn up and um, very kindly tow me onto the side of the roundabout. And the guy lets me borrow his phone. And I call my dad and he's like, right, okay, it's time to bring in the AA. So you're going to have to come home, I'm afraid. Which was terrible news because I still had this orchid to find. And it had like one or two days left before it would finish flowering. I left it quite late. And my home is like a seven hour drive away from this place. But, you know, I didn't really have a choice. So I got towed back through the night with lots of wonderful but very chatty AA night shift people. Got home at 8 o'clock in the morning, went straight to bed, you know, pretty upset because I was convinced that I just failed. And this was about halfway through. I'd say it was maybe number 27, 28. So, yeah, it was was pretty sad. But then a few hours later, to my annoyance, uh, my dad woke me up. um, And I was like, I don't. I just don't want, I just want to go to sleep. Uh, I've like failed in my adventure. Um, but my dad was like, no, Leif, it's, it's Father's Day. You need to get up because we need to have Father's Day lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and then he was like, and then you and this I... This man's gonna... got his priorities yeah. right. I'll be yeah. honest. <laughs> and then he was like, yeah, then you and I are going to drive all the way back to Northumberland to find oh. that orchid. What a legend. Yeah, so good. And so we had our lunch and then that's exactly what we did. We drove all the way back up and we went to find this orchid. And it was like, the lesser toy blade is this tiny, it's like five centimetres tall. It's very a spindly red thing. The flowers, unless you know what you're looking for, it basically looks like it doesn't have any flowers. So you're telling um, me this is a really underwhelming orchid Really, to find. really <laughs> underwhelming, yeah. Oh, no. And my dad just took one look at it and he's like, Leif, are you serious? serious? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, but it's so cool. Um, but he he's a massive nature fan himself, so he could completely, he could see how happy it may be. And like, we had this really nice sort of me and my dad nature experience. So That's, it was that really amazing. That is a really nice moment. Um, yeah, really it was, nice it was. And um yeah, he completely saved my summer. So, um, so uh, you've half jokingly promised me an exclusive here. <laughs> you've got another book coming out. I do. Tell, us, tell me everything that you can possibly tell me since you've been muzzled for a year. I have more tell me two about two the years. Next two years. Be three by the time we release this. Oh podcast. my goodness. <laughs> what what can oh you tell me goodness. about it? So I yeah I had the idea three years ago. I got the book deal almost two years ago and I haven't been able to talk about it on social media or anything since so I might actually explode <laughs> I'm so excited for you oh, I wish you. listeners could see how excited you are about <laughs> the thing that you've been doing no it's it's brilliant but no I am you're so right I'm so excited and honestly I just can't wait for people to read it um I think well what would you like to know I can I can talk about anything well so, st- uh, for starters does it have a name it does have a name. It's called Where the Wildflowers Grow. Oh, I like it. So <laughs> it's about wildflowers. We're drifting from orchids. It is, yes. So as much as I love orchids... Hey, they've I, had enough of the limelight. They really have. Um, I think orchids, very rightly, get a lot of praise because they're amazing plants. But 
there are just so many other cool things. Mm. And I'm, to be honest, very excited to be moving away from orchids and be doing something else because I've spent the last four years longer, way longer than that. Just are you a bit orchids. bored of being the orchid man, the orchid boy? I, like? I am a little bit, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, I think, yeah, as I say, I still love them, but I'm quite keen to point out all the other amazing things that plants do. So the book is... Mm. And getting across the depth of joy it's possible to experience from going for a walk with our wild plants. So the book explores our it explores our contemporary relationship with Britain and Ireland's wild plants mm. and like what it is about them that intertwined our lives with theirs in the first place, why uh, we perhaps know less about them now than we used to in the past. And to to sort of do this, I've been on a massive adventure through the seasons. So the whole of 2021, I have been going on plant hunts all over Britain and Ireland. Um, starting on the 1st of January, hung over in the rain in London with my mum, <laughs> <laughs> looking for little street plants in, in the pavements. Um, and then, yeah, all the way through, like early spring comes in, and you've got like bluebell woods and all those amazing um, spring wildflowers in the woodlands. Through the spring and summer, each chapter is sort of loosely habitat based, and I've tried to find the the commonest plants that kind of define those habitats, as well as introducing a few rare plants along the way. I've tried to find our most intriguing plants are the coolest plants the things that do the weirdest and the wackiest things and the whole way through i have had the honor and the privilege of going for plant hunts with people who have some kind of connection to their local flora and it has just been the most special thing to talk to them about why they like going to look for plants and just hearing about all their experiences the things that they find most fun about looking for plants in their particular local environment. And that's what it is like as a whole. And as I say, it works its way through all the seasons. I have one more trip to do. But yeah, by the time this comes out, I will have finished. And I'll actually finish writing the book altogether when this comes out, which will be very exciting. That's going to be an amazing feeling. It really is. But yeah, so that's kind of like an overview of the book. So the thing I really wanted to do is to show people who, hopefully people who haven't actually really paid much attention to plants before will read it. Either they haven't really thought about nature at all or they're interested in nature but just haven't really thought much about plants. Mm. I'm really hoping that it will just open open people's eyes to the amazing things that plants do, the amazing things that we have here in this country. There are all sorts of incredible things that you might associate with plants, like in the rainforest, that occur here. And they're all just like hidden around. Well, not hidden, they're just in plain sight, but people don't really talk about it. Exactly. Mm. And just give... I want to try and help people to connect with wildflowers. So the whole thing is like a... It's not like a template. It's just my way of the sharing the ways with which I engage with plants and I interact with them just to give people some ideas, I suppose, of ways in, of like ways to start doing it and try. Yeah, I just try to share how much joy I get from looking at plants 
and try and share the ways in which I do it in the hope that it might inspire at least one person hopefully <laughs> oh I'm quite convinced it will because your enthusiasm for things is infectious and there's nothing better or I don't know about you but when I meet people who are really passionate about one thing and then listening to them talk about the thing they're passionate about and they're knowledgeable about that's what gets me interested in a thing because you start to see it through their eyes and that sounds like exactly what I know that your writing will do I can't wait to read it I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it um I yeah don't know a huge amount about plants. I don't know a huge amount about anything. I'll just I'll just. <laughs> I'm sure that's but not true. Not in any huge detail, but what, one of the problems I find is that when I read books like yours, um, and you know, like I can see wilding on your um on your yes. bookshelf behind you. I thoroughly enjoyed that this year, but I have to stop myself as I'm reading because I try to consume it as a textbook, mm. and I'm there like oh. I want all of this knowledge yeah. in my brain, but in reality, the only thing that I'm left with is just a stronger sense of connection to nature. And and I have to really stop and think, why am I reading this? I'm reading this for enjoyment, <laughs> not not to try and be a sponge. So I, I think I think it's I think it's great that you've you've really emphasising how it makes you feel and and your connection to and these other people, this community that you're you're you know holidaying in when you spend time with people and you can see it through their eyes. You're not just yeah. going as a as a, as a visitor yeah no it's very much uh, there's a lot of emotion in there but listen we've spoken for like an hour now and i barely even scratched the surface of the many questions <laughs> that i have for you so i i hope that you'll come back and talk to me about more plants another time because of it's been course. an absolute treat i do i do have one last question for yes. you um you mentioned that you you know sometimes use social media to try and help people connect uh with the natural world i remember you did couch to five moss was an in- a very yeah i'd like to put in a formal request um yes. i saw one character made a new appearance on your instagram and this was leaf but germany and I, oh, I would Lars like for more, Germany. Lars for Germany. Lars for like Germany. Lars. I want more Lars. Maybe, maybe because I connected with uh, with Lars on a not very knowledgeable about plants level. But yeah, <laughs> well, that's exactly the aim. That's exactly the point of him. Um, and yeah, I have plenty of plans uh, with Lars. <laughs> he's current. He's currently writing my book for me. <laughs> so, for context, the listeners who haven't seen it, tell us who Lars he, is. Okay, so. Lars Germany is sort of my, my alter ego. So in these videos, the idea is you've got me, Leif Bursweden, um, as like, well, myself, the botanist. I tell you what, you're lucky you've got a surname that can be switched so, so <laughs> And yeah, my alter ego, Lars Germany is he's like an act first, ask questions later sort of person. So... He's the one who's eating the poisonous berries or grabbing the stinging nettles, all that kind of thing. And Leif is, well, I (laughs) am hoping (laughs) to teach people watching these videos about plants by sharing these weird sketches between Leif and Lars. (laughs) I I really enjoy them. Thank you so, so much. I look forward to the book coming out. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll share it with all of our few listeners. I'm oh, sure well, they will you. absolutely love it. But <laughs> in the meantime, everybody should go and read The Orchid Hunter for a bit more of you. And uh, where else can people find you? I am on Twitter and Instagram and also brand new on TikTok. 
Um, if oh. you're on TikTok, yeah, which is where Lars but Germany generally resides. <laughs> oh, this is why I haven't seen him. Um, I well, made the leap to TikTok. Well, <laughs> yeah, that and Instagram. He's uh, he's made his appearances, but yeah, mainly Twitter and Instagram, Brilliant. and that's just my name. There's nothing fancy about it. It's just Leif by Sweden. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And as always, you can find a little bit more from For What It's Earth on our social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. You can drop us an email at forwhatitsearthpod at gmail.com. And um, while you're at it, don't forget to go and give us a nice little five star review or, you know, any review you fancy, but five stars would be uh, would be preferable on Apple Podcasts or now actually you can do it on Spotify too. So hop on over, tell people you like the podcast and then it it helps us reach new listeners, which is just lovely. A lovely thing to do for a small independent pod like us. Um, So I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. What a wonderful conversation. What a wonderful chap, lovely botanist and all round good egg. I'll see you in a couple of weeks time for another episode of For What It's Earth. Bye.